Welcome to Toby Haydock's Who's Round. Uh, although we're a free podcast, I'm happy to say we're in the black. sunny day uh, in London uh, and I've been welcomed into the home of somebody who's going to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. (laughs) Yeah, I'm John Black and I directed some Doctor Who's in the early 80s and um, I live in West London. What else would you like to know? Well, I suppose we'll we'll come to where we are now later. We'll start with the reason... uh, the nominal reason for these podcasts is that you directed some very important Doctor Who over a very condensed period of time, but an important time in the show's history. You started with The Keeper of Traken, um, Tom Baker's penultimate story. So how did your involvement with that come about? Well, I was a jobbing director and, um, as ever, looking for work. And I thought, well, I would give Doctor Who a try. So... Um, I didn't know John Nathan Turner at all, but I wrote to him, contacted him, and um, we met. And as a result, he offered me Keeper of Dragon. Well, that's what the one he offered me eventually. Yeah. And uh, well, he's he's a very interesting figure, John. So, what are your memories of of, of John, who was the the last producer of Doctor Who, as it turned out? Well, at that point, he was a very new producer having just been promoted from unit manager. And and in fact, on Keeper of Traken, Barry Letts was the exec producer because um, the powers that be, I think, didn't feel quite sure that John could fly yet as a producer. So um, Barry Letts... um, had taken on this role. He knew Barry and liked Barry. Barry's an astonishingly nice and intelligent man. And um, and actually Barry um, gave him more or less as much freedom as he wanted, but he was the ultimate arbiter on scripts in theory at the time. Very different personalities, John and, John and Barry. Couldn't be more different, really. Um, yes. Uh, John was, you know, uh, unusual in a sense uh, amongst producers at the BBC at that time in that he didn't have the the sort of Oxbridge background that so many had in those days. And um, and Barry was obviously much more intellectual and um, oriented with sort of literary background and so forth. Um, John had come up very much through the practical school of getting productions made and had very much, I think, made his name by being an effective um, getter of things done. Um, And um, I think it was Graham MacDonald who had promoted John, is that right? Yeah. And um, I think probably the um, elevation of John had raised one or two eyebrows, 
But um, John leapt at his opportunity and grasped it with both hands and was very determined to be in charge. Um, so didn't consult Barry very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, and took, took control and really enjoyed the role thoroughly. Well, it's interesting because he's, he, you have those two very different personalities. And then on the script front, you've got Christopher H. Bidmead, who was the script editor who rewrote a lot of the scripts that season, driving the sort of hard science agenda of Doctor Who at that, that time. Because it was emerging from a period where Tom Baker had been very much given free reign. And it's a much more maudlin uh, Tom that you get in that final year. So did you, we, were you, was there anything in your brief that was, we're taking this show in a, in a new direction in a particular I think probably there were tensions between Chris and John. Um, Chris had his own agenda, as you rightly say. Um, I'm not sure that John shared it. Indeed, I'm not sure that John really was that interested in the nitty-gritty of these things. He really just wanted nice, good scripts, which he could then get on and make. <laughs> And you've got a good, a good script, heavily rewritten from what, jo what Johnny Byrne had done, but it's a, it's a very nice script, Keeper. And what's very interesting about Keeper of Charkin is that, and I wonder if this was why, or what it was about you that you thought, because, because directors are cast as much as actors, aren't they? It's not like a space saga, it's, it looks like a Shakespearean drama, and it's a very sumptuous and, you know, it's got lovely dialogue, it's a very lyrical sort of production. So was that, was that more to your taste than more traditional sci-fi? Uh, yes, is the short answer. Um, oddly, John um, hadn't got a lot of confidence in the script, and um, which he later admitted after the event to me. Um, and um, I think he was agreeably surprised by the direction I took it in. What I found great about that particular script was that because you weren't constrained by it being set in any very specific world, um, I was able to say, right, let's do a sort of Art Nouveau <laughs> type of thing. And I didn't know Chris, um, sorry, Tony Burroughs, who was the designer um, but um, he responded very much to the idea of an Art Nouveau one and of course came out with the Gaudi sets that um, he produced and actually although I had seen them in books I hadn't at that point been to Spain to, and seen them in the flesh as it were and but he did a marvellous job and I was incredibly lucky that he pulled off those sets and uh, the whole keeper cage, as it were, mm. worked remarkably well, I thought. And I was, I was lucky in that um, Amy Roberts, who was one of the top BBC costume designers, um, was also <laughs> my girlfriend and I managed to get her and I knew she would do an absolutely amazing job, which she did. Yeah. Um, and so I was very lucky with that combination of 
design talent. Um, I mean, it'd be hard to get better, really. And, um, and because of that, I think, also, because I felt that it, it wasn't um, plot-driven in quite the way that some are, um, but there was more chance of character, and it needed character to flesh it out. And we had six consuls, or whatever it was, I can't remember the exact number, um, but I thought if I cast them very distinctly, um, although they only had very few lines each, um, that would nonetheless give the whole thing a kind of richness um, and bring in a whole element of character mm. which um, would stand it in good stead. And um, I think it was never that difficult to get actors for Doctor Who because of its reputation and I think it gave actors great credibility with their families if they, <laughs> if they were in Doctor Who so they were quite and they didn't take it too seriously for the most part and they enjoyed doing it and it was a bit of fun and money of course and um, so they were generally pleased to do it even if the roles weren't all that big. Um, and so what about because the, one of the I mean the main guest star of Keeper of Charter went on to be um, a, a mainstay of the show there till its end was Anthony Ainley who ended up being the master but we didn't know that at the time so and I believe he was cast by Barry I think was he all, all in well, consultation with you? He was more cast by John I think but whether John consulted Barry I, he may well have done that I wasn't privy to um, but because he was John had then in his mind that he would be the master um, that um, he was anxious to take the leading role in casting that part because, you know, his part in, in, in um, Trucken was, was important, but, you know, John had a much longer vision of what was going to happen to him in the future. And so he, he um, largely cast Anthony. Um, which was fine by me, you know, because I think, you know, if you're a producer of an on-running thing, then obviously on the on-running characters, you've got to have a pretty big say, you know. Well, and of course, the on-running character um, who has the biggest impact, and he was on his way out, it's his penultimate story, Tom Baker. So um, uh, how was working with the legend that is Tom? <laughs> um, Tom was... Um, nice to work with, um, easy to work with in, in some respects, though I think he'd become so adept at kind of stealing scenes and the camera and so on, and he'd got it down to a fine art that um, he did indulge himself occasionally. Um, but, um, you know, he, he was Doctor Who then, He'd been there the longest, probably, of all of them. I'm not quite sure about oh, yes, the yes. history. And um, and it, he was in a very turbulent um, frame of mind, though, and one was aware of that because it was a huge decision on his part to come out of the Doctor. 
course, apart from anything else, it was <laughs> a wonderful meal ticket. Sure. Sold to 63 countries, repeated all over the place. Um, so it was obviously a very difficult um, decision giving that up. Um, and he was in the middle of that. And he was, you know, a, a colourful character, shall we say, who, um, whose emotions were flying around and you were aware they were flying around. He was obviously capable of acting when he needed to act. But one was aware that sort of behind the scenes uh, a lot was going on. And I think quite a lot was going on in his private life as well. Um, so, you know, the combination of both those things um, <laughs> meant he was, he was in another place outside <laughs> yeah. the, the rehearsal room and so on. I think, he, yeah, I think he's, he's fairly candid about that now, about wh wh where he was, um, you know, emotionally at that time, which was oh, understandably, yes, um, staring into the abyss. In, in, in a certain regard. Well, before we move on from Keep of Track, are you a musical person? Did you have much influence on that? Because it's a great score from uh, Roger Lim. Yeah. I, I can't claim to have um, had a lot of say or input into the music. Um, Roger, um, we discussed it and my thoughts about it and he, he saw the show, so he took it from there, really. Um, well, and then you, you sort of, in this very, as I say, condensed period, you become the sort of the, the, the golden boy of Doctor Who because you're entrusted with the spin-off and you're entrusted with the first production for the new Doctor. So let's, let's, go, let's go to the spin-off first. Let's go to the, the one-off, K9 and Company, uh, the first pilot for Sarah Jane and K9, who, of course, I don't know if you know, have, have since had their own series created by Russell T. Davis. So... Was obviously mileage in it, but was was what what was the feeling about that at the time? Was it a, a job that you relished, and, and did John tell you why he'd asked you to do it? Well, he he I th think had been genuinely pleased with what I'd done with Traken, and surprised because, as I say, he thought it was a rather weak script, and um, and yet he was very pleased with how it turned out, and it was during that time that he was preparing, as you say, what he hoped would be a pilot um, and go further. And um, so he took me aside one day and said, you know, and told me that he had this in mind and would I be happy to direct it? And I said yes. And so the, the, I take it there wasn't a script at that point. What did you think of the script? What did you think? Because uh, when you're doing a pilot for us, but they could have done anything with with K nine and with with Liz Slade indeed. So what did you? What, what were your feelings when you found out they're investigating witchcraft in a village? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was intrigued. Um, I think the one thing that did concern me because I'd heard from other directors. Um, that K9 itself was a bit of a nightmare for directors because it kept breaking down and actually was rather heavy and very <laughs> untechnical. <laughs> yeah. um, technical for its time, perhaps, but... Um, <laughs> well, BBC technical, which is yeah. not the world leader in certain regards. So, anyway, that, but 
I was I was intrigued by the story, and um, and then I met Liz Layton, of course, and liked her and felt she was a good actress. Um, so, and again, I saw the opportunity to cast good people. Um, well, Bill Fraser had just done a Doctor Who. Um... Yeah, he was. He was a very characterful actor, um, and quite literally a character actor. Um, and and I thought good for the story, you know, in, in the way he he played it. And um, it, there were uh, quite a lot of good actors. Oh, uh, yeah, when you cast one of my favourites, Colin Jevons. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who does who does shady and sort of slightly weedy and creepy, but better than anybody. Yeah, he's, he's a remarkably good actor. Um, so, again, it was an opportunity for me um, to, to use, work with good actors, which I, it also was an opportunity um, to work on film, because we shot some of the inserts on film, and also... Um, to use stunt drivers and so forth, you know. I think as a director, as a young director, you're always looking for opportunities to do different things and have new experiences um, as, as a means of learning your craft and, and, and having some fun, you know. I mean, one of the, the real joys of Keeper of Track, and just to go back to that for a second, was that I did feel that I had a completely, you know, blank sheet and I could pick whatever period, costumes, whatever you I liked. And that was a great freedom and a, a, a great opportunity and, and very nice for a director, you know. You, there was nothing constraining about it. One could just make a decision and go with it. I have to ask you with Canine and Company, I have to ask you about um, the opening music. The music um, was a bit of a given because it was coming out of the Doctor Who stable, which tended to be electronic. Um, and um, so again, I, I don't remember a huge amount of discussion about that. I might well have suggested an orchestra, but... Um, you know, budgets, it was done on a shoestring, even by the standards of that day. It was because it was theoretically, well, certainly in John's head, a pilot. Um, but I'm not sure that the people commissioning it necessarily saw it as a pilot. They just saw it perhaps oh, as, just a as a Christmas. Yeah, oh. they certainly weren't um, committing themselves beyond that. I mean, obviously, if somebody pulls off something that obviously has potential, then, you know, the controllers of BBC One or whatever will probably um, be convinced and, and commission it. But that was more, I think, in John's head okay. than in their head. Sure. Um, I mean, they might have humoured him by saying, you know, well, you know, pilot well fine you know if it's got legs we'll <laughs> we'll let it run but um they didn't pick it up as it happened well, yeah, but it did it did well though you know it did in viewing figures and everything it, it, yeah. it did well didn't it it, it uh, but as you say it remains 
Uh, but of course, it's viewing figures in those days. Yes, yeah. yes, of course. Big numbers were watching at Christmas. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, except for in one area where the transmitter went out, which is one of those things that I certainly remember from my youth, of suddenly the programme you wanted to watch you couldn't watch anymore because the transmitters were gone. <laughs> we don't have that anymore with the digital age. Um, and so it remained a one-off curio, and you were then entrusted with bringing the new Doctor. It was his second story, but it was the first one he filmed with... So, so uh, nursemaiding, new Dr. Peter Davison. So, so what Correct. do you remember of, of, of Peter and, and how helpful were you to him, do you think? <laughs> well, um, I, I met Peter, obviously, and I knew that it was actually the, going to be the second to go out, but the first to be recorded of his. Um, and I knew, too, that John had got this conception of the cricketing outfit. Um, and I kept pressing John as much as I could to explain quite what the rationale behind the cricketing outfit was, because it wasn't entirely clear to me <laughs> how that fitted into the general stream of Doctor Who. Um, I think there was a problem. I think Peter felt it, I felt it to some extent, that in the casting of Peter, which was John's decision, and I, I'm not quite sure, I never managed to get from him a kind of rationale for why he had cast Peter and why he had kitted him out in the way he had kitted him out. Um, it, it all seemed a bit bizarre to me. And, um, and although the story involved this cricket ball and outer space and all the rest of it, um, it, um, it didn't altogether hang together as a character. And I think both Peter and I struggled to quite interpret the story and find a, a, a doctor role for, for Peter. He, he took a strongish line, but I think, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this now with the knowledge that, of talking to him post the event, sure. that, that um, he felt a bit at sea in, in that. Uh, an odd choice to have the then youngest doctor by quite a margin, and surround, surround him by three young companions as well. Um, so, which meant that you're constantly having to find something for everybody to do yeah. in the story. Yeah, I think I, that was the other part of the problem. I mean, we had these three assistants, and nothing altogether much to do with them. And I think there was an element in the back of John's mind of trying out people and seeing who who stood out at the end of it. <laughs> well, of course, because going Sarah, ahead. Sarah Sutton in Trakin hadn't been intended to, to carry on, no, had she? No, no. So she was your casting she for was a one-off role. She was my casting for a one-off role, and John liked her and decided to take her on board, as it were. Yeah. 
So suddenly you've got this extra character on top of the two that they'd already planned, planned to have. Um, and of course, what any good story needs, and I do like Fort of Doomsday, I think it's, it's... I don't think there's another Doctor Who story quite like it. I quite like the fact that it, it takes its time and sets up the atmosphere of the spaceship. Again, brilliant design work and some fantastic lighting on those sets. Mm. Mm. Um, but you need a good villain, and you've got Stratford Johns, which uh, I think helps... Uh, any anything so getting it so so I get you mentioned before did it didn't take much persuading to get an actor of his caliber on board maybe took more persuading to getting to cover himself in green makeup yes <laughs> um, yeah Stratford Johns I don't think he hesitated too much about taking the role but when he discovered what it actually entailed in terms of makeup and wearing this incredibly hot rubber costume um, as the frog, the king, um, he got increasingly <laughs> irritated with the whole process. And it really put a great strain on him because he was, I can't remember now how many hours in makeup, but considerable. And then for the rest of the day, you know, he was overheating dramatically um, while um, the studio was being recorded and all the rest of it. So he was not a happy bunny at all while he was in his costume. Um, but, you know, he's, he's an old trooper and uh, a professional, so he, he got through it and... <laughs> so made a few bitter comments about it, but um, that's all entirely understandable. What was your policy with Castle? Did you did you go out and see people and think so? How would you acquire somebody like? There's another great Castle. I mean, you've got Bert Kwok in a tiny part. I don't know how you managed to persuade him, and and then Philip Locke and Paul Shelley. You know, very these are very good actors. Um, did you were you working with people that you knew, or did you go to the theatre a lot with an eye to looking for people? Um. Well, in the case of Paul Shelley, I knew him. Um, we, we'd been friends, um, more or less, from university days. We had a, a, a common friend, um, a friend in common, um, and so I'd met him and so on. So I expect, um, I thought of him because I knew him, and, um, and he may well have done it for, partly for that reason. Um, Otherwise, no, I did look around for good actors and try and persuade them. Um, so, you know, as I said, it's, a, it's an opportunity to work with um, interesting people. Also, I'm a great believer that casting is, especially in what are not big roles, where, you know, an actor has a lot of lines and time to establish character and relationships within things. This, you know, is much more fast-moving in Doctor Who and more sketched. And therefore, it seems to me that if you're going to fill in the gaps, one way of doing it is by having somebody who fills that space rather well and brings a kind of almost instant character um, to a part. Um, so I, I cast carefully and um, as good actors as I could get. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So, so of the of the three, which is the one that you 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 were happiest with? I think Keeper of Trakhand. I um, I just enjoyed um, the whole process, and I felt the design. I felt as a piece, it hangs together um, more thoroughly than the others. Um, Canine and Company, I, you know, I think does hold up quite well, um, and um, I enjoyed doing. Um, I have to say, I think least um, was Fall to Doomsday, in my view. Um, I never quite felt it quite gelled, and also I, this idea of you know four different ethnic groups doing different things and so on. Um, There's a lot of time spent watching people dancing. Yeah, and um, it's all a bit disparate. Um, you know, it doesn't hold together, it doesn't knit so well together. There's a very ambitious special effects sequence at the end of that you've alluded to with the cricket ball and the and the rope and having rope on CSI is uh, CSI CSO is always difficult, isn't it? Because it has a tendency to disappear. It's a hard thing to, to uh, Yeah. Well, you see, again, the, the, this is the thing that attracts directors. You know, that sequence although <laughs> if you look at it now you would be you know, not think much of it. Um, but at the time, it was, according to, you know, the sort of technical boffins that we had surrounding us um, and helping us with that, was the most complicated CSO that had been done by the BBC up to that moment, you know. Um, I'm sure it's been overtaken a hundred times since, but, you know, so... As a, as a director, you know, it was interesting to be in the middle of that and try and get your head round it all and see what the problems were and try and find ways of mitigating them. Um, so do you enjoy the technical aspect of television direction then? I mean, is, is, do you, do, is, there, a, is there a scientific or engineering part no. of your makeup? Well, scientific perhaps, but um, not engineering, no. Um, it's a challenge and um, it's interesting and, you know, if you've got something to do like that, you'd better get your head round it um, or you're, you're not in control of it. Um, so having had this, this very concentrated and successful stint uh, in, a, in a very, in that, that sort of big crossover time in the show's history, that was, that was it with Doc 2. So uh, was there ever any offering that you would, you would come back? Um, not as what happened was that um, I did those three shows. I think he, John, had got other directors by then lined up for the next, I can't remember how, how many shows, which represents several months. Okay. So obviously, um, I, I could. I knew I wasn't going to be coming back like very soon, so I then went off and did other things and uh, and like anything you don't you would like to do more possibly, but um, you're also very aware that producers you know find other directors 
and so on, um, who they find congenial or whatever, and um, they work with them. And um, so I had no necessarily ex expectation. This is being a freelance, as yeah. you well know. Um, you you get on with your life and find other things. And if somebody comes back later, it could be, you know, months later or it could be years later, um, then you hopefully can work again with them. But sure. it, in fact, um, I think John got involved with a sort of coterie of directors that he was particularly comfortable with. And um, I, I never got another invitation, so and quite why that was, I don't know. Life of the freelance. Well, you mentioned that, that, that you know, how you got onto the show was that you were a, a jobbing director, so what got you to that point? What was your background? Did you, was, was directing for television something that you'd, you'd aimed to do? <laughs> um, not particularly, is, is the answer. It, um, it really cropped up that when I was leaving university, St Andrews University, um, there was the possibility, the opportunity um, of becoming um, a trainee reporter at Scottish Television because um, Thompson, Lord Thompson, had just got the licence back, the licence to print money as he called it, of Scottish television again and in trying to regain his license he'd put in it um, his presentation and package to the government that he would employ, he would train a couple of graduates from Scotland and bring them into television. And so that's the door I strode through um, and I was lucky, actually, because although they'd put this in the prospectus, as it were, they hadn't talked to the unions properly. And the unions certainly weren't very keen on the idea that there should be a sort of a stream just walking straight into decent jobs. Um, and so I was very lucky in that I was promoted to being a reporter although obviously a novice reporter. So I was actually able to get on air straight away. The other person who was picked at the time and who, as it were, was the trainee reporter that we were both supposed to be, um, as per the prospectus, um, he was less lucky in that because he didn't get a union ticket immediately, um, he had to wait quite a while before he actually got on air. But I was lucky because they appointed me as a, as a reporter. I could get uh, a ticket straight away and went on air. Um, and then after three years or so of that, I decided actually I would rather be behind the camera and directing, which is when I joined the BBC as a director in current affairs and documentaries and stuff in Newcastle. And that's when I went on the BBC director's course, a three-month one in those days, uh -huh. those far-off days. And um, I did a drama which I showed to head of plays 
and they said, well, if you're willing to take a contract, you can come more or less tomorrow. Um, if you want to wait and get a staff job, you know, it's, it's going to possibly be years, but, um, but if you're prepared to come on a contract, um, we'll take you as a PA tomorrow, more or less. And so I did. And um, I was incredibly lucky in that I, the first thing I did for Play's department was to work with um, Tony Garnett and Ken Loach, who was directing Days of Hope back up in the northeast, which gave me a particular entree, and which is why they'd requested me, because I knew the area and indeed knew quite a lot of miners and so on from my time up in Newcastle. And um, so I immediately was back in <laughs> the northeast. Uh, working with um, these two and um, that was a great wonderful opportunity. And I, had you known what to expect with, with those two because I mean obviously their way of making drama is uh, you know is remarkable because it, it bucks the trend of, of so much that surrounds it. Well I didn't know a lot about it um, <laughs> before I joined them. I mean obviously I knew about Kathy came home and so on, but, um, and I'd seen Cares and so on, but it was, um, so I didn't know a great deal of detail about how exactly they worked, but obviously I very rapidly learned that as I was assisting, I was um, the second assistant director effectively on it, and um, setting up locations and people and so on. A wonderful experience of course and great to work with those two. So I had at least two years as a, a PA and AD essentially um, and I worked with Stephen Frears, all kinds of good people, Alan Bridges, um, um, John McKenzie, um, oh. yeah um, is that the best way to learn, to learn to, to, to work for good directors and, and do what they do or find what you do? I don't know that it's a particularly good way, but obviously if you're interested in directing and you're working with really good people, then hopefully something rubs off and you at least see how they work. Um, the, the problem really is you're not there just to observe how they're doing things. You're, you've got a pretty solid job yeah. to do. <laughs> All the thankless tasks. Yes. So what about, the, the, you mentioned the, the centrepiece, of the, the one of which is Dr. Joss Ackland. Um, so you, you, you're directing, they're sort of one-off plays, aren't they? There was, yeah, short one-off one plays, yeah. Um, it was a 30-minute play, play slot, um, and anything could go into it that was the right length um, and it was highly varied um, and the first one I did was um, our Terry um, and that was you know terrifying but also very interesting and 
I was for the first time, you know, totally responsible. Yeah. Um, the casting was for a family, and um, yeah, it was it was obviously quite nerve wracking at the time, but um, interesting. And what are so what are what are what are the because I always feel bad for people that do Doctor Who that they're always asked about Doctor Who. Um, what 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 were some of the other productions that you do? You did a play for today, didn't you, with Miriam Margulies and Bill Patterson? No, oh, you've done your research. Well, <laughs> I at least accord you the courtesy of that. <laughs> yes, yes, um, yes. I did that up in Edinburgh, which is. Well, it's, it's kind of my home big town because I really, in a sense, come from St Andrews. Yeah. Um, I, I had an African childhood but um, came back to um, St Andrews when I was 10, when the family moved back. And so where, where were you brought up? St Andrews, largely. But, but Before that, that yeah. um, I was actually born in um, Malawi. Wow. Um, and then um, my mother had I and my brother um, in South Africa during the war while my father was back in the war effort, as it were. Then he came back and we moved to Tanzania. And that's the part I remember best, the, the five years between the ages of five and ten. when we were in the Usambara Mountains in 3,000 feet up this tiny little research station. My father was a research chemist for the colonial office. Wow. <laughs> Long gone. Do, have, you ever been to, have you ever been back? I have been back, yes. Um, uh, about a decade ago, I went back to East Africa um, and um, went up to Amani and looked at all these places that I'd grown up, <laughs> somewhat different. Uh, yes, I bet. Yes, um, very run down compared with when we were there. And also, sadly, um, because apparently I was told that the, the Belgians, I think it was, had logged Yusambara Mountains, which are one of the most diverse areas in, of equatorial forest in in Africa, um, they've been logged consistently from I think the fifties to the seventies, and so the 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 rainforest was not as I remember it with huge trees and higher and so on. It had been um, logged and they brought in all kinds of species from South America and so on, fast-growing species to fill the gaps. And um, what was sad, and this I was told by um, an African scientist in the laboratory that my father used to work in, and he said, well, what's happened is that because the canopy has been um, broken, in effect, by this logging, um, the ambient temperature has gone up a couple of degrees and now the malaria and mosquitoes are, are there, which they used not to be. <clears throat> which is why, you know, um, Europeans had chosen 
Amani, which is where this place was, um, at 3,000 feet, because it, it had a very nice climate. It was not far from the equator, in fact, oh. but um, it, it had, a because of its height and so on, it had a very decent climate and very little um, by way of malaria, but all that had changed. And whereas the population when we were there um, was, I don't know, probably measured in hundreds, it's now measured in thousands, if not tens of thousands. And so, I mean, when we spoke on the phone before I came here, you said, you know, you, you, you retired from the business and looking back was uh, perhaps not in your nature, you prefer to look forward, it's totally understandable. But um, was, did you move consciously away from, from directing? Did, did, is, 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 is that creative impulse something that ever, that ever leaves you? So what, what, what happened when you, when you moved away from television? What, did, what, what path did you forge and, what, and, and why had you chosen to do that? Well, um, I, I'd always juggled a, a career which um, was partly drama, making drama, but also because I did actually have a much more factual, my father was a scientist and I, I've always had a, quite an interest in science, though I haven't really done anything with it. Um, I did quite a lot of um, documentaries. Uh, I used to make educational films for the Shell Film Unit, for instance, which were very well funded and um, were, in their funny way, quite prestigious and, and quite interesting things to do. Um, so I'd always juggled in order, really, just to make a living from <laughs> um, all these things. Um, when I got to the age of about 60, I realised that unless you were a Ken Loach or um, Stephen Frears or somebody and had really made the jump into movies, you were probably not going to be able to sustain um, directing well into your 60s. Um, and I thought rather than hang around for the phones to ring or do what um, some of my peers were doing which was cleaning up messes um, after younger people had <laughs> yeah. fallen on their face a bit um, I thought well actually I'll make a clean break um, also the, the, I had a health issue then which I thought um, perhaps prompted a move away from um, this worrisome thing. Also, I think a freelance existence is, is hard work, you know. You, you, it, if you're not prepared to network, if you're not prepared to be out there and looking around all the time and coming up with new ideas and doing all this sort of effort all the time, um, you're not going to succeed anyway. So I just thought, well, maybe this is the time to, to make a complete change, which I did. So I'd actually been one of the first people into um, Pilates way back in my early career. And, um, and I had actually 
done something for, I think it was Rank Xerox, um, a video um, which used a troupe of mime artists. And interestingly, um, the director of this mime troupe suggested to me, because I, he knew I was pretty sportive, that um, I might like to um, try out Pilates with him because he wanted to do it and he was in the physical theatre world and knew about Pilates whereas at that time virtually nobody else did and um, so I went along and actually I stayed with it and so I realised um, that you could actually make a pretty good little business um, as running a Pilates studio so when I decided to pack it all in I trained rapidly as a Pilates um, teacher. I'd been doing it for years, so that wasn't a big deal. And um, I set up a little studio in my house and, and ran it for 10 years. Um, and then finally um, have stopped everything and now are fully retired. See, this is why this is the podcast, because... I don't think anybody has known until now that the director of Keeper of Trucken was a pioneer of Pilates in the UK. <laughs> you see, this is the stuff. Well, John, thank you for uh, inviting me to your home and for partaking in this. Uh, for no recompense at all, apart from donations from the listeners to your charity of choice. So if you could tell us what that is. I would like um, any monies that this makes to go to Second Sight. Second Sight is a tiny little charity um, which is run by Lucy Maven, uh, who is an ophthalmologist, was uh, a TV reporter, the first Asian TV reporter of the BBC at one point, and um, she now um, raises money to try and cure um, cataract blindness in India and particularly in the state of Bihar and actually another thing I did since leaving my um, Pilates life behind is did a CELTA course teaching English to foreign people and um, I've been out to this hospital that she supports a couple of times to teach the um, young girls who she's training up to take on some of the ophthalmology um, jobs in the hospital um, to improve their English so that they can um, get their exams which because India is still <laughs> in its colonial past a bit, um, are in English. Um, medical exams in India are still conducted in English. Um, and of course that's quite a stretch for people who've grown up in local languages. Um, so um, I've been part of a sort of relay thing, going out there for a month at a time to help bring these girls up to scratch with their English. Well, you certainly haven't been idle. So, no. <laughs> and you've seen a lot of the world. Yeah, I have seen a lot of the world. Well, fantastic. Well, it's been fascinating about that. My final question is, um, this is listened to by Doctor Who fans. 
uh, and this podcast was started to celebrate the 50th year of Doctor Who, which was a couple of years ago as we record this. So what's your message to the listening Doctor Who fans? Oh. <laughs> well, watch on. <laughs> um, I don't know that I've got any particular message for them, but um, it's, it's a great pleasure for me to go to some of their um, events and um, I've never been um, somebody who, you know, has got so absorbed in a program or anything to the point where I become a fan. So it, for me, it's, it's very interesting to meet people who have got such a passion about Doctor Who and follow it so closely. It, um, it surprises me, but um, it, it certainly <laughs> leaves a good feeling that people care about these old programmes. Yeah, well, they, they, you know, and especially the stuff that you did, it shaped my childhood, so it's a, an extra delight that uh, you've, you've kindly given me your time and your hospitality. So it just remains for me to say, John Black, thank you very much. Thank you. That was great. I hope that was okay for you. Welcome. My thanks to John for a fascinating chat and for his hospitality. Uh, his charity is Second Sight, which is www.secondsight, all one word, uh, site, S-I-G-H-D, secondsight.org.uk, Second Sight. Uh, and as ever, uh, as this is free, if you could uh, spare a penny or two, uh, to thank John for his time and for a good cause I'd be very grateful there'll be uh, more of the same but with a different person uh, at around the same time next week but uh, till then thanks for listening and ta-ta It was in this trench we removed five layers before we got to it it was among remnants of clothing also a small knife and a man's bracelet the indications are that there was a violent event here, but our excavation has recovered genuine Iron Age relics. The discovery of this item, we can't explain it. Doctor, it's a Mavellum power pack. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, the fourth Doctor adventures, the Mavellum Grave. Oh, the drone's moving. Something else is coming up. Your people hunt. Please, put him down. Oh, no. What? We've got to get back to the dig. Everyone on this planet is in the most terrible danger. Oh, come on. Ugh, I'd forgotten how cold you Mavellans can be. You're serious, aren't you? If I can access these orders, we'll find out why Mavellans were on Earth 2,000 years ago. Big Finish. We love stories. <laughs>